The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Black Material Geographies. My name is Teju Adisa Farrar. I am speaking to you from Oakland, California, the unceded territory of the Ohlone Chichenyo-speaking people. This is a place where I have spent most of my life. As a baby, the first house that I lived in was in West Oakland. Born to two parents who are academics, my dad has a PhD in archaeology and anthropology and my mom in literature and ethnic studies, so I grew up in a very creative, intellectual, political household. I've always had an interest in the intersections of Black identity, space, and place because I noticed growing up that not all neighborhoods were designed equally. My family used to say when I was younger that I had save the world syndrome. Whenever I consider any issue, but especially how our environments are designed and operated, it is often that Black and Indigenous communities are excluded at many levels. So my work focuses on connecting the dots between environmental justice, Black identity, colonialism, and history, because what I've learned is that all of these layers impact our present and our future. When we look at these layers, we realize this has been happening for centuries. This is not new. It's evolved to be so endemic that now we don't notice it. The goal of my work is to unearth and show how these systems work in tandem with each other and how most things in our modern lives are linked in some way to systems of exclusion and inequity. The biggest industrial polluter on the planet is fossil fuels, specifically oil, and the second biggest polluter on the planet is fashion. We worry about how we get our food, factory farms, pesticides, but we rarely consider that most of our clothes are made with toxic chemicals and have polyester and nylon in them, which is plastic. And most of the refineries and petrochemical plants in this country that produce plastic products, including materials for our clothes and plastic bags and bottles, are located in Black and Latinx communities. Welcome to Black Material Geographies, a collection of conversations and stories using Blackness as a lens to explore textile material culture and how we can create more sustainable systems amid the global climate crisis and Western lifestyles that are deeply entrenched in colonialism. We will explore what Black futures could be with scholars, designers, researchers, and many more. Why am I doing this show? Because it's vital that people understand how all of these systems are connected so that we recognize that true sustainability will only be successful if we are all included. When we become more aware of how these systems work together, we can understand how to transform them and support the alternatives that are being created by those of us who are intentionally forgotten. 
From before we are born to when we die, humans are impacted by our environments, and simultaneously we impact our environments as well. All of the materials and products that make up our daily lives, from what we eat to what we wear, come from the earth, our collective environment. The current material conditions of our lives in the Western world are the consequences of several historical events that can't be overlooked if we want better futures. The journeys and actions of Christopher Columbus and other European colonists led to significant geographical and social transformations of the modern era. In a matter of a hundred years, nearly 60 million indigenous Americans were killed due to foreign diseases, displacement, and wars waged on them by European colonial settlers. More than 12 million Africans were forcibly transported to work as slaves in the United States and across the Americas. This was made possible by European colonialism on the continent of Africa, which began the largest extraction of natural resources in human history. These events changed the physical landscape of the Americas, altered global trade, and cemented anti-Black racism. And as my father says, you can't end history in the present. Material culture is uh, what is created through what we refer to as technology. The basic technology, it, it includes agriculture, farming, it includes woodworking, it includes pottery manufacture, the making of textiles. So material culture are those things which have been shaped from the natural environment to serve human needs and human existence. By looking at Black people, humans identified as Black, we can better understand a few things. One, how the material conditions of our lives are created through exploitation and systems that are dependent on racism. Two, the human capacity for innovation outside of and despite capitalism. And three, alternatives and more ethical material realities that are good for the planet, they are possible and they are happening now. The only question is, who gets to make our futures and are they truly sustainable if some people are left out? Africa is often left out of the stories we tell in the Western world about our societies, the modern era, and material culture. Although, without the continent of Africa, the resources it provides to the world and the people descended from there, the West would not be the global power that it is today. One of the main things that unites us as Black people is that our ancestors come from the continent of Africa. And like the continent, we too are left out of these conversations. Our labor, ingenuity, and resistance has shaped cultural expression, agricultural practices, and society more broadly. All of the textiles that we use and wear on a daily basis and the fibers they are made from have journeys impacting different regions, communities, and our environment. 
I have been thinking about material geographies for a long time, and a lot of that has to do with my dad, Tariq Farrar, whom I endearingly call Baba. So I had a Zoom call with him recently to figure out how he became interested in material culture even before I was born. What does it mean that this is being recorded? And I asked him to introduce himself. Teju, this is your podcast. I'm your guest. Aren't you supposed to introduce the guest? And after some convincing... Do they pay money for this? So how do podcasters make money then? <laughs> I finally got him to say a few words about himself and his experience. My name is Tariq Farrar. I'm currently sitting at my desk in Oakland. Originally, I'm from Boston. Right now, I'm retired. But for many years, I was a teacher. I'm an anthropologist. Now I was trained in an archaeology program at UC Berkeley. But, you know, mostly what I do is history. The way I describe myself is as a historical anthropologist. Another term that's sometimes used for that is ethno-historian, but it's one that I don't particularly care for. My area specialization in, as a college student, you know, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate, was, uh, was Africa, particularly West Africa. That was the, the, the part of the world that I was most interested in and that I studied. My father has the most African shirts of anyone I know, as well as the most books. He calls himself a former Black nationalist, and his love of Africa came from the Black consciousness that he developed as a teenager. Ultimately, my dad is a nerd, and I mean that in a good way. He finds the historical details of what makes up human life to be incredibly interesting. But I never lost that interest, and I never stopped paying attention to that how people built their houses, how they built the boats that they, you know, traveled along the river systems with, how they made the clothes that they wore. The, what the French uh, historian, Fernand Brodel, called the everyday structures of life. I wasn't interested in political history so much as the history of uh, a study of the way that people lived, the material conditions of human life. I wanted to know how people built their houses, how they grew their food, how they made textiles or fabrics that they wore, how ordinary people lived. As for Baba's interest, the material culture of pre-colonial Africa was vast and overlooked. When my father was a student, historians were just starting to pick apart the false narratives that had been woven by white colonial historians and scholars for centuries. And they began to write and talk and challenge at least some of the stereotypes of Africa. But most African-American people didn't have access to that. Most African-American people were, you know, we were subject to the, you know, the characterizations in the imagery of Africa that came from the educational system, the popular literature, you know, and that had people with bones through their noses running around mostly naked and notions of cannibals. And this is what we were exposed to. They even had cartoons like this. You know, there's this cartoon that was very popular of this African with a spear and a bone through his nose. And, you know, and it was nothing but music. And he was hopping to the music. It was the spear chasing after some animal. That was a whole cartoon. Dun, 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 dun. And he would hop in rhythm, you know, with mine, with the spear. And then there were the Tarzan movies. That's what the image of Africa was. And I was always interested in history, even before I knew what the name was. I was interested in culture. I wasn't interested in basketball, baseball, football. None of that stuff was I interested in, but I was interested in the Vikings, the Romans, the ancient Greeks, the Native Americans. But there was nothing about Africa, nothing serious. So the 
period of the middle, late 1960s, it was like the metaphor that's often been used as a blind person being able to see for the first time. When we discovered African history, it was truly like the blind being able to see. After first learning about African history, Baba never looked back and dedicated his life to studying the material conditions of African and African-descended peoples. Although his perspective is historical, the impetus was political. There was clearly a political motivation there to challenge the stereotypes of this notion that Black people were without history. Over the years, the contributions of Africans, and thus Black people, have been forgotten or excluded. As my dad says, it's a learned forgetting. Forgetting the contributions of Africans and Black people is learned and not based on historical evidence of our contributions. There is a long and rich history of textile commerce across the continent that is part of Africa's agricultural legacy, and it is not very well known. For Lorinda and Fatuma, their brand is about paying homage to the contributions African culture has made to contemporary design and the world. They are sisters, and together they run Collective Closets, a clothing label based in Melbourne, Australia. A lot of what is about Collective Closets is about celebrating our heritage as African living in the West, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, that is the heart and the DNA that makes up our brand. We knew that we wanted to start a business or something that delved into our passion for clothing. We grew up with parents that made our clothes, that sewed, that really allowed for us to, to dig deeper into our creative outlets. So, yeah, hence Collective Closets came about. We travelled to Nairobi, Kenya, and it was kind of like a light bulb moment for us that we were like, uh-huh, I get it. I see what the aesthetic of the brand could look like. And hence the marriage between our upbringing Hence the marriage between our mother's love for the fabrics that she grew up with. The two sisters were intentional about using clothing to honor their mother's home country of Angola and their African heritage. Their goal in opening collective closets was to marry African aesthetics with Western fashion. Like many people in the diaspora, their connection to their heritage was through seeing family wear traditional clothing, textiles, and patterns. The mom's from Angola and we grew up watching her and my aunties all wear traditional clothes. You know what I mean? A lot of the time, whether it was just at home, in some sort of outlet, she'd always wrap herself in in some sort of textile that was from home. Those were always reminiscent of her childhood as well. Um, so I think that was a piece of her that she kept quite close. Um, even now when we look back at photos of her, it's like, oh, this is just, I can see where the love for us also came from, of just watching her, you know, really appreciate um, yeah, the textiles and everything that came from, from her background. So she taught that to us. Yeah, so that's what we wanted Collective Closets to be. A love of textiles is passed down through generations. It becomes part of our familial lineages. Just as I grew up seeing my dad wearing different styles of African shirts, Lorinda and Fatuma as children witnessed their mother wearing Angolan textiles. Textiles create a connection to a source outside of the West, in this case, Africa, for those of us in the diaspora. Whether our ancestors were forcibly taken from the continent a few centuries ago, as is the case with my family in both the U.S. and Jamaica, or your parents arrived in the West a few decades ago, as is the case with Lorinda and Fatuma, it is a culture of textiles that links us all. We do two seasons a year, and for our 
colder months, autumn, winterish months, we use the textile that is called the sugar, reminiscent of the Maasai tribe of Eastern Africa. So we use that particular textile throughout the colder months and then through the warmer months we use a cotton base. Lorinda and Fatuma have a base knowledge about African aesthetics. Through collective closets, they are expanding on it and bringing Africa into conversations about fashion in the West. This is not an easy task, considering, as we learned earlier, Africa is often excluded or forgotten in conversations about innovation, even though the continent has continually displayed its resilience and ingenuity. We can see how there are challenges just trying to source fabric from tropical Africa, even though it has a long history of natural fiber and fabric production. Our research and our understanding, a lot of the challenges that we've come up with, especially more so with our summer print, it's taken, like I said, almost six, seven years to be able to get to this space because we didn't, we couldn't find a supplier. We couldn't find anybody. We didn't know anyone that was making the fabrics from scratch from the beginning to the end. So that's been a really challenging experience for us, a really um, challenging journey to be able to find that. We're very lucky now that our supplier was also venturing into that. So she's put a lot of money into starting that process and that's essentially her business. And we've been lucky to, like I said, our paths crossed really essentially at the right time. And even still now, like with conversations with her, she says it's in a dying art form. You know, in Senegal and the West of Africa, there are not many, not many people or families it's normally families that take on um, from generations is passed on from, you know, son. A lot of the men do it, apparently, um, and pass it on to their son and pass it on, on to their sons. Um, it's also that the space has also been infiltrated by copycats. So a lot of the times in the markets, what our supplier is telling us as well is that the people that actually dye the fabric are being phased out by you know, big factories that are able to copy for far, far less. So instead of buying you know, the yards at quite expensive rates, you're gonna get an imitation or a copy for far, far, far less. So that's also sweeping through and phasing out the people that are actually making the fabrics from scratch. In the 19th century, European colonial governments in parts of tropical Africa centralized textile manufacture and tried to control or eradicate decentralized artisanal textile production. Instead of textiles being made over time by hand in communities using plants that were endemic to an area, colonial governments created centralized manufacturing hubs. This centralization was based on producing in mass and saving on costs by lowering the quality of the materials and the skill required to make the fabrics. Decades later, finding handmade fabrics that are created using these traditional textile practices is a real issue. Collective's Closets is trying to address this. One way they're trying to reclaim and re-elevate those practices is by co-creating their own fabric with an artisan in Senegal. Just recently, actually, with our suppliers who are in the west of Africa and Senegal, we have actually just started, for the first time ever, created our own batik print. So we've chosen two colours. With them, we've designed this beautiful batik. So the staple of the actual fabric itself is a cotton and then they go ahead and they hand dye it, hand press hundreds and hundreds of yards of fabric that take weeks and weeks and weeks 
to meticulously hand dye and create. So that's a first for us, which has been an amazing experience to be able to understand and to learn that process. That's how it all came about. It was honestly almost by chance. We were talking to our supplier and we were just saying, you know, we're a bit frustrated with really knowing whether or not our fabrics are coming from an authentic place and what the supply chain is. And she was saying exactly the same thing. I think we're all in a space now where we want to be able to bring, you know, not just authenticity, but um, also just understand from an environmental perspective where everything's coming from. And that's what you're paying for. You're paying for knowing who has made your fabrics. You're, you know, for us, we're paying, even though we're paying far, far, far more, but for us, we can sleep at night very well, comfortably knowing that we know who the makers are. We know that we're paying them very fairly. We know that we're allowing them to sustain their craft. And we know at the core of it, the idea that this craft will continue on for as long as possible. When most of us buy products, be they clothes, food, or technology, we have no idea who makes our stuff. All of the people involved and their labor is made invisible in consumption. Collective Closets takes on extra costs to support the traditional artisanal practices of West Africa and to know who is making their fabrics. In order to design more sustainably for the future, we have to look to the agricultural and artisanal practices of our past, as my father has done with his life work and as Collective Closets does with their brand. While we can't reverse the consequences of colonialism and the environmental and cultural violence that it has caused, we can be critical about how we move forward and how we value the ecosystems our products come from and the people who make them. It's time for the wind down. I invite you to take a deep breath and stretch your body. Release tension in your shoulders, jaw, neck. Taking a moment to reflect on and process our conversations today. Our journey into black consciousness and tropical Africa our journey of honoring the brilliance of African people and those of us in the diaspora paying homage to our heritage. We talked about some things today, so let's just take it all in for a few moments. I invite you to take a deep breath and thank yourself for listening to something new today. I invite you to take a deep breath and imagine the black and brown hands that have carefully made your clothes. Thank you to those humans who craft our material realities. They are the ones we owe our comfort to. Thank you to the land from which everything comes, our home, our planet, our earth, Thank you for spending time with me and my Baba. Thank you for caring about Africa's innovative ancient past. Thank you for listening, learning, and experiencing the material geographies that we are all made of. 
you can subscribe to Black Material Geographies anywhere you get your podcasts. Black Material Geographies is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. This podcast is a team effort. Thank you to the Black Material Geographies team, my producer, Tiffany Roger, audio editor, Ray Royal, researcher, Haven Obasalase, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Cote, Check, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amelisa Yu Ting Ko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com.